Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Well, I have the great opportunity. I don't know about you guys, but I have the great opportunity to bring the word this morning. So um, I will admit to you I'm very nervous because I don't normally do this, and I normally give 15-minute rah-rah speeches, and uh, now I have a full time. So I was putting together my sermon, and I ended up clocking it like at an hour and something. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't do that. So I got down to 52 minutes, so I hope you brought your pals. Um, uh, but first, um, do you guys do you guys hear about the new church in town? Anybody? It's called the Well-Rounded Church. They have four services. There's one for those new to the faith, one for those who like traditional worship, and uh, one for those who would uh, who has lost their faith would like to get back to their faith. And then there's those who have had bad experience with churches and they can complain about it. Okay? Now they call these services several different things, but these are these are what they call the services. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Okay. Anyway, no fun, right? <laughs> I did that so I could get relaxed. So anyway, praise the Lord. Um this morning I'll be speaking on the topic of uh, worship, uh, worshiping in sp spirit and in truth. And uh, it's been kind of on my heart. We do a lot of it in, in worship practice nights where we just get together and talk and watch a video. And then we discuss what that means to us and what that means sometimes to the body of Christ and, and that kind of stuff. And so uh, last Sunday or a couple of weeks ago, Tom said that there was an opening for for some for someone to preach and asked if I wanted to do it and my initial response was going to be no but um, after thinking about it uh, real quickly I thought no I I need to do that it's been this has been something on my heart uh, also I'm not claiming to know everything and I'm not claiming that I have such great spiritual knowledge but I I do know that um, this church has a lot of um, very good preachers in it people who have studied the word people who have taken it to heart. And so, again, this morning I might be preaching like to the choir. You might be hearing things that you already know. But how many know that there are things that we know and don't practice sometimes, right? And how many know that there's, you know, having all the head knowledge in the world, if we get and stand before God and we don't have that relationship with him, even the devils and Satan know Jesus. They know God. So... It's important to understand, you know, certain things. And, and I, I think worship is one of them. Um, many people have a, a different meanings of worship. It seems like to be the most word that is uh, sometimes most confused with what worship really is. Um, I think that he speaks to us deeper meanings uh, through these words. And I believe worship is one of those words that he can speak to us with. Um... We get so used to saying a word a certain way, you know, that, that it actually sometimes takes on a new meaning, and, and we see it a different way. So now last week we heard from Wayne about the joy set before us, and, and Wayne made a statement that when Jesus was on the cross that he had us on his mind, and that, that really blessed me. I mean, I, I really thought, man, that's really awesome. How many here would have somebody else on their mind when they're hanging on a cross? 
You know, and sometimes you take these things that someone says and you just think about it and you think, what would I do if I was there? You know, and there's no way. And so I was just so blessed. And, and, and this is what, what he meant is that he was able to see the joy set before him. In other words, he knew who he was. He had an intimate relationship with his father and his love was so great for us that the pain and suffering he endured on the cross was nothing compared to what would be accomplished through his death and resurrection. And I believe strongly that in order to truly know that joy that we're talking about that's set before us, that we need to know God intimately. We need to know the one. And the way to know him intimately is through what? Worship. Worship in spirit and truth. So let's uh, turn to John chapter 4, 19 through 26. We can go to John chapter 4. I want to take a look at this idea of worship. And now before I read this scripture, I want to I have, I have come to find out that sometimes reading, how many people like take a certain couple verses and they like you can build a sermon around like two or three verses, you know. But sometimes I think when we take the whole chapter or even sections of scripture, we find out that when we get to certain things, we're like, wow, I missed that. It really means more than just what. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying, I'm just saying sometimes when I read, I try to read a little bit more before and after to see if there's anything I'm missing that's going on there. And uh, so in John chapter 4, starting in verse 19, it says, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that, there's a, that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So now remember, this woman is a Samaritan. She doesn't have the, the best history, okay? And, and the Jews kind of look down on that, you know? And uh, Jesus is having this back and forth conversation with this woman, trying to get to know her and her, him. And uh, she begins to recognize Jesus as a prophet. And so it goes on in 21, it says, Woman. Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. And yet a time is coming and has come now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Then the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ. He's coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. So what he's saying here is that I'm impressed with your knowledge and what you're saying. But the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, you know, he'll explain it all to us and we'll understand. And Jesus said to her, I am the one speaking to you. I am he. So Jesus is now making sure to the, to the lady that she understands that, hey, I'm this Christ that you're talking about, and I am the one, and I am he. I am here now, so you need to listen to what I have to say here. So many people spend time trying to understand the spirit part and the truth part, and they focus on all that. But this morning, I want to kind of focus on, and we're going to go into that, but I want to focus on what it says before. It says to worship in spirit and truth. So what does that worship thing mean? And I'm not going to answer the question up front because I want, I want the scriptures as we go through them to kind of lead us to that conclusion. 
Um, so we understand in John uh, 4.23, Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worship worshipers the Father seeks. So keep in mind here, he's making it very clear to the woman that, that he's seeking certain types of worshipers, a certain type of worshiper, one who worships in spirit and in truth. So we have to unravel some of these terms in, in order to kind of understand where this is taking us. So let's go, well, let's start out with truth. What is truth? Well, we know in John 14, 6, Jesus states, I am the truth. So number one, Jesus is the truth, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in Psalms 119, 142, and 160, it says, um, God's laws and words are truth. Your righteousness is everlasting and your law is true. All your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. And so number three, the word, truth, put on flesh. We know in John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and the only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. So we can conclude that Jesus is the truth. God's laws and words are the truth. And the word truth had put on flesh. So he wants people to worship him in truth. So truth in context of what we're talking about is the word, Jesus in the word. So now it also says to worship in spirit. And that could be a whole nother sermon. I'm sure someone else could do a better job at that. Um, but I just want to kind of simply define it. And, and I was looking at this. It's, it's, I want to define it this way. Spirit is the fullness of the intent. Okay, so let's say this way. The, the fullness of the intent of the part that's the truth. So instead of just worshiping him mechanically, let's, we're going to take the sixth commandment uh, as an example here. Thou shalt not kill. The intent of its meaning is to not even think about it or want to commit it in your heart, even if you really physically haven't gone out and killed somebody. He says you're still guilty, right? So he wants you to worship him in spirit and in truth with the fullness of the intent, meaning the truth being the basic understanding and the fullness of the intent, meaning the advanced understanding. What I'm going to say, let's break it down. The basic understanding would be like, don't go out and actually kill somebody. This would be the literal sense of it. Okay, the literal basic. The advanced understanding would be don't even desire or think about going out and killing someone. This would be the advanced, the fullness of the intent. So many people want to spiritualize the spirit part and take it to a higher level rather than when it says God is spirit. It's saying that God is the essence of the intent. He is the intent. That God is the intent. The intent is that we would grow to the point that we are like Him. Amen? Being like God is the goal and our intent is to be an example. I want to take you to a foundational scripture that, that I found when I was uh, putting this together in the Old Testament before we move on. And uh, it's in Genesis 22, 1-5. And this is a story about Abraham and Isaac. And God asked Abraham and Isaac, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, go to the region of Moriah, and there I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. 
Now, I don't know about you. Here I am putting myself in the shoes. I'm I'm thinking, there's no freaking way. There's no way. I'm going to have some talk with God. But here, it it doesn't even say that. It says the next morning he got up and he went to do it. And he said to his servants, when they got there, the third day, he gets to the, the mountain Moriah, and, and he says, God says, this is where I want you to do, or to Moriah, and, and it says, stay here with the donkey to his two servants, and the boy and I are going to go over there, and we're going to worship. I find it fascinating between verses 2 and 3, there's no record of arguing or complaining to God about what's getting ready to take place here. It says that he got up the next morning, and he went on to do what God called him to do. Is that our first thought, to get up every morning when we get out of bed is to run and do what God told us to do? I know it's not mine. I know I don't do that every morning. I'm just being honest. Now, there's sometimes where God has me thinking about something I'm going to do that day, and I know it's for Him, and I'm, 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 I get up and I get, start preparing for it, like today. <laughs> today was pretty evident that I needed God in my life to do what I'm doing right now. Um, but... I just thought that was really interesting that it doesn't say it. And, and maybe there was, but it doesn't say it. And many times they do explain someone's attitude towards God in the Bible. So I, I just had to look at that, and that was amazing that, that there was, it doesn't talk about his, his heartache or, God, how could you tell me to do that kind of thing. I believe it was the intimacy with God that kept his mind and his heart in check. Abraham knew God, and he knew his voice. Many people... believe the definition of worship is what? Singing, lifting your hands up, jumping up and down. Okay? Anybody here think that that's what Abraham and Isaac and the two men want to do? I don't think so. I don't think there's anything that defines that, you know. I think they want to, because here, let's take a look. I don't think we can use that definition here because the worship means to bow down in great respect, to honor, to give homage and submission. And I believe that Abraham was going to honor in great respect, in homage and submission, to do what God had commanded him to do. So in Genesis 22, verse 6, it says, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he carried it, he carried the fire and the knife, and the two men. As the two of them went together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the firewood here, the fire and the wood are here, but the, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Now, at this point, I'm thinking, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm thinking I'd be freaking out trying to answer my son why I don't have a burnt offering for God. Because I don't think Abraham sat down the night before and said, Hey, Isaac, God told me I got to take you out. I got to sacrifice you to God and, and you won't be alive after tomorrow afternoon. I don't think he did that. I think what the God, that he knew God's voice. He knew who God was. He had this relationship. It was so intimate that he knew God was going to provide a way. He didn't know how. He didn't even know why this was happening other than it was a test of obedience to him. So moving on, worship means to bow down in great respect, to honor and to give homage and submission. So let's turn to Matthew 2, 1 through 2. And we're going to read the story of where Jesus was born in Bethlehem during the time of King Herod. 
The Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, some translations use the word reverence, which is the same use of the Greek word in John 4 that we read earlier. Um, the Greek word is proskuneo. Now, proskuneo means to fawn over or crouch, to prostrate oneself in homage, to do reverence to adore. So I thought, well, let's take a look at that definition and the words in that definition. And so I went to prostrate. What does prostrate mean? It means to lie down, face down on the ground, right? Homage means to give special respect or to show honor publicly. Reverence means to treat with deep and great respect. So this is what I'm, I'm seeing here. It's saying that worship is that the, the Magi were coming to do proskuneo. They were coming to prostrate themselves before Jesus. They were coming to make a public display, display of their respect and honor for Jesus. And they were coming to give reverence and to treat with deep and great respect to Jesus. Anybody here think they were going to go sing a few songs? I don't think so. Now, maybe they did. Maybe, maybe they're saying, you know, la, 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 la. You know, I don't know. But I didn't get that feeling when I was reading the scripture. So I believe that when we use the word worship for singing and raise our hands, we should probably really be using the word praise. Because what does it say? It, 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 it says to praise him with a song, praise him with a harp, praise him with a cymbal. And I'm not trying to diminish the value of a word here, but what I am trying to do is say that we're uh, doing praise is great. We're doing it. That's awesome. But we're just using the wrong word for the wrong, uh, the wrong definition for the wrong word. And worship has a different de definition. It says, and we're going to go on and finish Matthew um, 2, 3 through 4. It says, King Herod was disturbed. Why was he disturbed? Because he thought this king was coming to take his place. And so he calls all the people's chiefs and the preachers and the teachers of the law and he asked them where Messiah was going to be born. And they said, in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is the prophet, what the prophet has written. So, so apparently Herod knows about this, this prophecy, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found them out and... Or, found out that from the exact time the star had appeared, and then he said, sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go search carefully for this child, for as soon as you find him, report back to me so that I may too go and worship him. Now, I think we all know that King Herod didn't have any plans on going to worship Jesus because um, it goes on to later say what his plans were. So, But what we are finding out here is that worshiping is bowing down in submission to an authority to showing honor, homage, and great respect, but also the idea of submission. And now I know submission wasn't in that definition, but bowing was. And so I said, what does it mean to bow down before somebody? It means to obey, pledge allegiance, to submit one's will to someone, especially in reverential or servile manner. Much like I would say the kings and queens. You know, like back in the old days where they had kings and queens. Um... You always saw them like if the queen or king was passing, it was like, you know, like this, or, you know, it was like this before the king on the throne, or it was like both knees down on the ground, like this, depending on what was going on. 
And, um, and so, you see, bowing is a form of submission. And the Magi knew that when they were coming, they were coming to submit to this king. So let's continue Matthew 2, 9 through 11. After they had worshipped, or after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now I kind of think here's an example of what Wayne was talking about, being overjoyed, the joy set before us. Because they knew where they were going. They knew they were coming to submit themselves to a king. They knew ahead of time that this baby that was being born was the savior of the world. And their heart felt that joy of what was coming before them. On coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother, Mary, and they bowed and worshipped him. There's the word worshipped again. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, now notice it says three gifts, not three magi. I just had to throw that in there. It could, be, it could have been more people. You know, it doesn't really say. There were, you know, we, we've kind of taken that and made it that, but that's not the important thing. The important thing here is that they came to worship him, pay reverence to him, and present their gifts to him. Now, these gifts were gifts deserving of a king. These weren't you know, a bib or a, you know, a baby bottle or anything like that. These were gifts that was customary when visiting kings and queens, such as certain expensive spices or perfumes or jewelry or precious metal. So I don't think it would have meant much if, if they were like a baby blanket or something like that. You know, I really don't. But they brought expensive things that, that the King Jesus probably had no idea what it was, you know, at that point. He's just laying there, you know, in a manger or in a bed with his mom and dad. And here come these, these wise men and they come and they start presenting these expensive, lavish gifts for a king. And so in verse 12, it says, Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And then Jesus was led by the Spirit. We're going, to, we're going to move on to Matthew 4, 1 through 3. We're going to go into another section of Scripture here now. And then it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Can't imagine why. The tempter came to him and said, Are you the Son of God? Tell these stones to become bread. Who led him there? The Spirit. It says the Spirit led Jesus there. So God really had a, a job for Satan. And that was, you know, I think it's funny that, that Satan, regardless of what he thinks, he's still serving God. He's serving God's purpose. And he will bow before him and he will submit himself to him and he does all the time. But his job in this role was to tempt Jesus. And in this case, it says, so, so when you say the devil made me do it, you say, I say, no, the devil encouraged you to do what was already in here. Okay? The devil encouraged that. And you just failed the test. That's all. So Jesus is, is going to be tested here because he needed to go through this process. And what was that process here that was, was co coming? He was showing that he was worthy. Worthiness comes through testing. 
He had to prove himself worthy. Worthiness is not something that was given to you or, or, or without testing and proving. So he's going to be found worthy here. And so it says that the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and continued the tempting here and had him stand on the highest point of the temple and says, If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and he will lift you up in, the, in their hands and so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus turned to him and answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord God to the test. Now notice here that the devil's tempting Jesus and he's using scripture to tempt him, tempt him with. How many know the devil knows the scripture pretty good? He really does. And he comes to us all the time. He tries to fool us. He's basically mocking Jesus, saying, because you took off the covering, you left heaven, you came down here, put on a flesh suit, you know, a body, and became like man, you think you can claim to be the Son of God. And Jesus really turns around and gives it right back to him, and he says, do not put the Lord, your God, to the test. And he's not saying, don't test my Father. He's saying, don't test me. I am the Lord, your God. He's putting Satan in his place. He's saying, hey, don't you even test me or tempt me anymore. Get away from me. I am the Lord, your God. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms. Oh, I'm sorry, let's go on. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord, your God, and serve him only. And Jesus said to him, oh, um, and the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. Now, why did the devil leave him? Because the test was over. He passed the test. Game over. It's all done. And so the devil moves on to go do some more testing somewhere else. And remember what, what worship has to do with being. It means to prostrate yourself, lie down, face the ground before God, give homage, meaning special respect and honor shown publicly, and then submission to place oneself under the authority of another. So the devil is saying here, I'll give you all these worldly things. All you have to do is bow down, show me some respect, and honor and submit yourself to me. And Jesus replied, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And he ends with, and you will serve him only. So now we see here that worship is connected to serving. Okay? So if your attitude is all wrong when you bow down, I hate to say it, but it's phony. You will have no interest in serving. So for us to serve the king, there has to be a humility. There has to be a humbleness, a broken contriteness that makes you want to submit yourself to his authority. And what he's saying here is that God is who you worship and God is whom you serve and serve alone. So Hopefully, we're getting a better understanding of what the word worship is and what it means. I'm going to go ahead and continue in Matthew 8, verse 1 through 3, where Jesus comes down from the mountainside and some large crowds he's been preaching and a man with leprosy comes in and, and kneels before him. Now, that, that word kneel or knelt is bow, worship, whatever you want. It goes back to that word proskuneo. 
And he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out and said, I am willing. And what's he do? He heals the leper immediately, becomes clean. No half hour of, you know, in the name of Jesus, you know, blah, blah, in my name and blah, blah, blah. He just said, be healed. It's done. So again, there's no hint to hear of singing and dancing. I'm sure you'd come up and go, hey, Jesus, you know, da, 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 da. heal me. You know, no, he gave honor, great respect, and he bowed down before him and worshiped him and said, God, in your great mercy and love, heal me. Matthew 9, 18, he says, um, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him. Again, another, another kneeling, bowing down, giving honor. My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Okay, so notice that he knelt and showed great respect and submitted himself and made this request. And Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Now, I'm going to jump down to verse 23, and it says, When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house, he saw a noisy crowd and people playing pipes and said, Go away, this girl is not dead but asleep. And they laughed at him. They scoffed at him. And after the crowd had been put outside and they finally got everybody out of the way he went and took the girl by the hand and she got up and the and news spread all over the region about this wonderful miracle that just took place now who was Jairus he was a ruler a president of a synagogue possibly maybe the worship one who brought the worship in the synagogue so you can read about the story also in Luke chapter 8 and Mark chapter 5 where Jairus says he was distressed because he faces the prospect of losing his only daughter who wouldn't be in distress. Here's what we know, number one, that not only did the synagogue official kneel, bow, and bow, but Luke 8.41 tells us that he started imploring or begging Jesus to come to his home and heal his daughter. The man was serious and he was desperate. The Gospels clearly indicate that Jairus deeply loved his daughter. And can you just imagine the crowd watching one of their synagogue leaders kneeling and bowing before him. I mean, we're talking about a ruler now. It'd be like a king coming up to a peasant saying, you know, bowing down before him. Number two, we know that it took some time before Jesus got from where he was to the funeral or to the house. Celebrations had already begun. Singing, uh, pipes were being gone, and Jesus starts telling everybody, hey, go away. She's not dead. And they're laughing. They're saying, are you kidding me? She died way before. Why are you even here? And he says, go away. For the, late, the girl is not dead. And he walks in after he gets rid of him. And she raises, this is a true miracle, people. They saw it. They knew it. It wasn't like she was in a coma or something. Because back then when he was there, a servant came running in and said, Jarius, hey, your daughter's dead. Forget it. Don't even invite Jesus. Don't even tell him to come anymore. It's too late. And so I'm reading this, and I'm like, well, I, I skipped over something, and I went back and I read it, and, and what I skipped over was this issue with the woman and the blood. And I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, why? Why is this here? I mean, why didn't they just take the story and finish it? And this is what I was talking about earlier. Sometimes you skip things, and you go over things, and, and, and you start to look, and I'm going, why? I mean, okay, so it's another miracle. It's another, I get that. Um, 
It took longer for Jesus to get here. This happened in between that. So it, it kind of helps present the story of Jesus getting there later. And not enough time to really do what, he, what everybody thought the way it should go. And I'm sure many people think Jairus was along the way saying, Come on, Jesus, let's go. Why are you taking so long? My daughter, my daughter's dead. They told me she's dead and you said she's okay. Why are we taking so long, you know? But no, I think there's more to it. And in, in, in as I, I kind of cheated, I, I like to get on the internet and go, well, why did Jesus do this? Or why did da, 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 you know? And Jesus, it says in verse 20, Jesus then, um, Jesus then, a, just then a woman who had been subject to the bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed in that moment. Again, I don't think she was there singing and dancing. She just reached out to touch his cloak. And so I'm reading this section of scripture and I'm going through the internet and I see this word sizitsi or sitsi, I think is how you say it. Does anybody know what a sitsi is? Okay. Someone's done a little bit of Jewish background and stuff. It is a prayer cloth. It's the shawl that, that Jesus was wearing. And, and it has tassels on it, you know, blue, and, and, and it hangs down. And, um, and as I was studying this, I, I, I saw, uh, well, here, the word sitsi is literally defined as the fringes and refers to the strings attached to the corners of the tallet, the Jewish prayer shawl. God commanded the Jews to affix these fringes to the corners of their clothing so they would constantly be reminded of his commandments so they would obey them. And so again, I'm, I'm thinking, well, this is interesting. You know, it's more than just touching the hem of a garment. There's actually some symbolism here. And they threw out the numbers 15, 37 through 41. So I want to read that. And it says, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on each corners of your garments with blue cords on each tassel. And then you will have these tassels to look at. So you will remember all the commands of the Lord that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own heart and eyes. And then you will remember to obey my commands and will be consecrated to your God for I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to be your God I am the Lord your God so as you, he, he said to make these tzitzis uh, attached to the hem of your garment so that you would remember God's law okay that you remember his laws could it be possibly that there's a link here to worship I don't know maybe I might be stretching it a bit, but I find it interesting. Could it be that God's saying by not chasing after the lust of our own hearts and obeying His commandments that we are bowing down and paying homage and submitting ourselves to Him? That the link of the Sitsi would be His, his walking, talking, this walking, talking Word made in flesh. He's the truth. He's the way, the life. Now, I find it funny that between, you know, Jairus and, and the healing of his daughter, there's this scripture. And so I'm reading this, and there's not a word that's out of order in scripture. Would everybody agree that there's a reason why every word's there? That everything is the written word of God, and it means something. It has some special representation regardless. And it's not out of order either. 
There's no word that doesn't belong there and there's no word that's out of order. So I'd ask the question, why is it there? And sometimes I believe we miss things by skipping over Scripture. Let's go to Matthew 14, 22 through 24. Immediately the disciples get into the boat and go ahead and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And later he dismissed them and he went up to the mountain. So here's a story about Jesus um, preaching to people. And he tells the disciples, go ahead. I'll be out there later. Um, but they're crossing the sea, okay? They're, they're going to cross the sea. And, and it's not like he was going to be ready in five minutes. He says, go ahead, go ahead of me. Get ready to go because it's going to take some time to cross the sea. And he goes, I'm going to let these people go. I'm going to go upside to the mountain. I'm going to get alone with God. I'm going to pray. And, and then I'm going to come down and I'll meet you later. And it says, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. That's why. I don't think the disciples had any clue he was going to come meet them walking on the water. Do you? I, mean, I don't think they had any clue. And, and I don't even know if they had a conversation, but it doesn't say it. It's just like Abraham. They got on the boat and they went. It doesn't say, well, God, how are you going to get, or Jesus, how are you going to get back there? How are you going to, they didn't have, it doesn't go into a conversation. So I'm assuming that there was no conversation. And they, they just were obedient. And they went and did what Jesus said to do. And then later that night, he comes walking. And the disciples see him walking on the water. And they were terrified. He says, it's a ghost. And they said, and cried out for fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter said, what? Let me come to you on the water. And what did he say? Come. And so Peter gets out of the boat. And he starts to see the wind and the waves. And he starts to lose focus. And he starts to get this fear in his heart. And he starts to sink. And Jesus reaches out with his hand and caught him and said, You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And then they climbed back into the boat and the wind died down. Now many people would stop right there because that's really the end of the story. But if you read the next verse, 33, it says, Those who were in the boat worshipped him saying truly you are the son of God so I'm thinking and it says then then they crossed over the lake and they went to the land of Gennesaret I'm thinking I had to read all of this to get to that word bow down and praise you or praise him and you see Jesus had to dismiss the crowd and, and do all these things so that he could get them walking on the water because at this moment I believe the disciples were verifying in their heart as they saw that only the Son of God could do what we're seeing. So now he's, Jesus is making a point that I am the Son of God, and they're acknowledging Him as the Son of God. And then in Matthew 14, 35-36, we go on to read, and, then, and when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to Him. And begged him to let the sick, what, touch the edge of his cloak. There's the harmon. There's the sitsi part again. And all who touched it were what? They were all healed. It doesn't say some were healed. It doesn't say that every other person got healed. It says that everyone that came and touched his garment, they were healed. And, and I, I just want to clarify right now. I'm not saying there's some supernatural spiritual thing going on with the sitsi. Okay? What I am saying 
is that the tzitzit is a symbol of God's commandments and observance in spirit and in truth. As in the full intent and in the basic understanding. You see, Jesus came to break the curse of the law. Not to get rid of the law, but to break the law. The curse of it, okay? To break the curse of the law. So I believe that story was thrown in there because what he's saying is, by her touching, she's, he's saying, look, I'm here. I am the Christ. I'm the, living, I'm the living God. I'm the one that can heal you. I am the person in flesh now. I am no longer, you know, this Old Testament thing, but I've come and I'm new. And, and, and I am the one, and I have come to break the curse of the law so that, so that you can be redeemed, your sins can be redeemed. So anyway, I, I found that so interesting. And so I, I, would, I would say just take some time when you're doing your, your devotionals and you have time to, to, to not jump around so much and to, to kind of read through things because I found it very interesting. I thought that, that this could possibly have something to do with that. And so there were mostly Jews coming to him and most of them probably observed the basic understanding but not doing it in the fullness of the intent. There was hypocrisy. They didn't have integrity in the way they were walking it out. You see, there was no integrity. There's no integrity by looking at you thinking my hatred is so great. There's no telling what I would do if I had the opportunity to kill you. There's no integrity in that. Where is the integrity? My character is flawed. Everything in Scripture, I believe, is about character. So if you wanted to keep a commandment, but break it so bad in your heart, it shows fault in your character. Because it's all about, here we go, being transformed and conformed into the image or character of Jesus Christ. So look at the connection here again. He's saying, you have little belief. He does this miracle, stops the winds, you know, um, and they get in the boat and, and, and then they bow down to worship him. They didn't sing or dance or do any of that stuff. They bowed themselves in honor and respect and homage and said, truly you are the Son of God. We recognize that you have the authority. That's the other thing worship is, acknowledging the authority of Jesus Christ. When you worship, you are making a public and clear acknowledgement that the one in front of you has the authority and you don't. He has the authority. How many people understand that we got to kind of have a sovereignty issue going on? Especially here in America. I really believe it. It's all about us. It's all about I. I like to say, I'm in charge. I say what goes on. You can't tell me what to do. It's I, I, I. It's all about me things, right? Well, it's that recognition of a higher authority that we need to bow down to and pay homage to with great respect and submission. That's what we call worship. This is critical to understand because it's the second commandment. You shall have no other God before me. What it's saying is that you shall not bow down to or pay homage to or have any great respect to or submit to any other God other than me. There's really only one authority. Now worship has a lot to do with respect also. Matthew 15, 1 through 9. I won't read all of this because it, it's getting long. 
But basically, it talks about the Pharisees coming after Jesus, saying, you know, your disciples didn't wash their hands before they, they ate. And Jesus counteracts them and says, no, look, you know, you know, you say because you gave um, something to the synagogue that you don't have to honor your mom and dad anymore. And, and so, you know, you're breaking God's law. So they're saying, hey, you're bre breaking our old tradition, man's laws. And, and Jesus says, hey, well, what's worse? You're breaking God's law by not honoring your father and mother. The tradition is that the oldest son, you know, when he gets the inheritance is to use to be taking care of the, the, the parents if they're still alive because someone might take advantage of them and so the oldest son is there meant to take that money and use it to help them and take care of them and, and make sure that they live out their life comfort, as comfortable as possible. And the man's law that they were talking about wasn't just regularly washing your hands before you eat so you didn't have dirty hands. It was a tradition. It was a, a jar of water and a bowl and you would pour the jar of water over the left hand and then the right hand, the left hand and the right hand. Okay? So this was a tradition. And they, they do that even today in Israel. And, and before they go and pray even at the wall, they do, they do. They have cups and stuff laying out there so you can, you know, do this little ritual. So what they were saying is you didn't do the ritual. And, and Jesus was saying, hey, you know, you didn't do this. And uh, it goes on to say that, um, you know, let's see. He goes on to say that these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. And teachings, their teachings are merely human rules. I would like to say and point out here, isn't this the spirit and truth problem right here? They're saying the right thing. They're saying the truth. They're saying the right things. They're using the right language. They're going through the right motions. But their heart is far from them. That's the spirit and part truth. When your heart and actions are in line, you are worshiping in spirit and truth. You know, he even refers to Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. Okay, so let's go to Isaiah 29. It says, the people, the people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based merely on human rules and have been taught. Guys, there's a fear problem going on here. There's no respect. They don't even fear God. You know why? Because they don't even recognize Jesus there as the true Son of God. Like the disciples did in the boat. They recognized this. Is, like the lady uh, with a woman issue of blood. She recognized. There it was. The flesh. Jesus Christ in flesh. But the Pharisees didn't. They did not recognize that this was Jesus Christ, Son of God, come to save man. Because to truly fear Him, you would have to honor and respect and have awe and reverence to Him to understand who you are fearing. Therefore, and it, well, I won't read all this to save some time too, but you, you can turn to it. I think I wrote the Scriptures down in the notes. But it goes on to say that He'll stound these people water upon water. He'll make the wisdom wise perish. The intelligence will be unintelligent. He goes on to, to talk about, you know, someone say, if you're the potter, um, uh, does the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? It's the blind leading the blind is what he's saying here. The blind is leading the blind. 
And I think another point he's saying here, you know, if you have relatives or friends, you know, they want to argue with you about things, he's saying, don't waste your time. Because this is something that has to be revealed to somebody. Now he's saying, don't go out and witness. He's not saying, don't go out and be a light. But when the time comes in someone's life, they're going to see and they're going to ask questions. You're going to be able to speak revelation into the heart. It even goes on to say in Matthew that, that, that the Pharisees were offended, you know, and, and, and that the disciples bring it to Jesus' attention, and then he says, they're the blind leading the blind. Don't worry about it. And see, there should be no spins. I mean, the, the reasoning of the heart are the spins that we put on things to justify doing something that we shouldn't be doing. How many have done that? Taken something and justified it for you but you knew all darn right and well it wasn't right. But you said, because of my situation, I have the right to do this. There should be no spins. It should be, Jesus said it, we believe it, I'm not going to do it. This is, this is the man who has the true fear of God because he's living out what God said not to do. He's living out what he said to do. He said, Abraham, grab your son, go do a burnt offering. Okay. So he got up the next morning and went to do it. No arguing, no discussion. And I'm sure Abraham, again, had no idea what the point was other than I'm going to be obedient to God. Matthew 15, 21, 26. Here's the, uh, again, I'll try to go through it. Um, Canaanite woman in the vicinity crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter's demon-possessed. I'm suffering terribly. Um, Jesus ignores her and goes on, continuing to talk and minister. And the disciples finally come to Jesus and says, you know what, get rid of this woman. You know, isn't she a pest? And, and I think Jesus was kind of ignoring this woman because I think he was trying to test the disciples, figure out what they were going to do. Why did they go over and minister? You know, Jesus was busy. Why didn't they go over? So I'm thinking Jesus is like ignoring. But there's also, there's also a thing that, that uh, there's an order of things that I see going on here. And um, Jesus looks at her, and there's this thing about the lost sheep of Israel it talks about in the Scripture. And usually it's like the Shomanites or the Samaritans. They, they ran to their pagan gods. And, they, and so they, it was like a, they were like the lower part of the, the barrel. And so the woman came and left, knelt before him. There's that word knelt again, proskuneo. Lord, help me, she said. Now watch the order of things here. As Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And I praise God that there's a plan now that God has with His grace and mercy extend to those who aren't from the house of Israel. Thank you, Jesus. That we too have that, that authority and that, that chance to accept Jesus Christ, right? So He replied, It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And here's, here's where I'm thinking Jesus called her a dog. Okay? But she says, Yes, Lord, it is. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off their master's table. Whew! And Jesus said, Wow! Woman, you have great faith. Hmm. And her daughter was healed at that moment. 
I'm trying to imagine how this is going. She's probably on her knees, prostrate before God, saying, God, please help me. I'm demon-possessed. It hurts. I, I don't want this anymore. I know who you are, and I know you can make this happen. Just heal me. And the disciples are like, man, aren't you noisy? Get out. Jesus, tell her to leave. And he says, you know what? I'm a, it's wrong to toss bread to the dogs. How many of your mom and dad say, you don't, don't feed the dog at the table, right? Yeah? Boy, we can say that goes all the way back, you know? Um, and Jesus said, and the lady says, even the dogs eat the crumbs off my master's table. They fall on the floor. Now she is prostrating herself, worshiping him. And she has even the right attitude. She says, I'll take even just the crumbs. Master, please help me. So once again, we look at the level of the belief, the integrity. There's no hypocrisy. She is completely genuine. She said, even the crumbs, I know who you are. I completely respect you. I'm honoring you. And I don't even care that you just called me a dog. No pride issue here. Isn't that what we see in the prodigal son story? Same thing. I'd be willing to go to my father's house and eat that which has fallen off his table and given to the pigs. For even they eat better than I do. Pride has to be worked out and eliminated to worship God. Our pride. It's showing respect. Deuteronomy 8 Two. And the last point I want to make today, and I know this is long and I'm very sorry, um, but being humble is very important when you're worshiping God. It says in Deuteronomy 2, remember the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. So here God is testing the Israelites to see what's in their heart. He was humbling them. And it's a hard part. That's the hardest part, I think. Being humble. How many know that you can actually be humble in the wrong way and it's prideful? It's pride. And you think you're, you know, you think you're being humble and you're really not. Notice she came to worship him and she was willing to humble herself even to the point of being called a dog. Yes, I'm a dog. Call me whatever you want. But even they eat the crumbs off their master's table. You can stop for a minute. Go ahead and start. So take a look, uh, closer look here. First, there was worship and then there was healing. I believe there's a connection we need to make about worship and healing. It's not about singing songs to him. It's not about raising your hands or looking up to the sky, but rather about laying on your face, bowing before him and com in complete humility, in complete submission with no pride saying, I don't deserve anything, God. But even the dogs eat the crumbs off my master's table. And saying, please, I know who you are, Jesus. I know who you are. I respect you. You are. You are who I honor. Believe me, I know who you are. 
I trust who you are. I submit, honor, respect, and do homage. Please heal me, Lord. Change me. Mold me. Shape me. Let's close our eyes. In closing, I just pray that this morning that something I said isn't something that you just knew. Or maybe you did, but it means more to you now. And I pray that this word of worship truly brings the true meaning. We say, what's the true meaning of Christmas? Well, what's the true meaning of worship? It's to get rid of yourself. To humble yourself. To bow down before God. To give homage and respect to Him. Because there is no other God he says, serve me only. There's no other authority. And when you gain this relationship with Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you are worshiping Him. You are saying, you are my King. There's no one else. I will do anything for you, even to death. I hope I know many of us know this already. Some of us maybe didn't quite catch the whole thing. But Jesus is saying, I'm the law, I'm the truth, I'm the way, I'm the life, I'm everything. I'm the Word. All you have to do is come and bow before me. And I'm going to release all my blessings, all my, all my shower you with love. And you're going to find out that He has great respect for you. And you're going to be saying, I don't deserve it. He's going to say, yes, you do. You're my child. You're my daughter. You're my son. When you begin to see God in this way, changes your life. The things of this world fade away. Because His Master that we serve is greater than any other. And nothing comes close. So I'm going to pray and I want to give you an opportunity to respond and if you need to, come out, come up here. Let's bow before God. Let's get before Him. Let's show Him the respect and the honor like they did the Queen and Kings. Let's tell God this morning, God, maybe, maybe I understood, but I didn't fully understand. Maybe I haven't really in my worship to You been bowing down, submitting my life to You and all the things that, that You've asked me to do and I'm not obeying. Maybe I'm not giving you the respect I need to do, but God, show it to me. Because I want to this morning. I want to give you the homage. I want to give you the respect. I want to give you everything that you deserve. So if that's you, or even if it's not you, maybe you're already doing it. Come up, let's do it again. It's not a one-time thing, amen? So join me this morning as I'm praying.
bow our heads. Father, we come to you this morning as we move into worship and praise. And Father, we bow our hearts to you in worship. Lord, we give you great respect this morning and we give you homage and we submit and we give ourselves to you. And Lord, we lay down our pride and we acknowledge you as the authority in our lives. Heal us, God. Heal us. For there are many here sick. Forgive us of our sins, Lord, and bring us to repentance that we might experience the fullness of your glory. Lord God, we esteem you in the highest praise. And we give you thanks for the great things you have done and what you're going to do. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Praise his holy name. Amen. <clears throat>